0: Therefore, gird your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear During the time of your stay upon earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Dear Father, thank you for these words. Thank you for uh, loving us so much that uh, uh, you've provided your words to us for us to understand. We pray that you would guide Tom uh, to uh, lead us today to these words. We pray that you would open our eyes to understand what you have for us and lead us to be closer to you today, Lord. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.
1: Good morning. I love the way God has lately been orchestrating the worship and the messages. Uh, one of the last things that Charlie said right at the end was at the, of the worship was, uh, our hope drives the way we live. That is very much what this passage is about. At one point during our Wednesday sermon discussion this week, my brother Patrick Emmert shared a true story from his own childhood that I will never forget. The story I'm going to tell you is loosely based on his, but I changed the name so I could make some stuff up. Jason is a young man who grew up on a farm. Jason's dad was the sort who approached fatherhood very strategically instead of haphazardly. He regularly treated the experiences of farm life as opportunities to impart wisdom to his son. For years, as as a young boy, Jason had been fascinated with his dad's big, mostly green, but very paint-worn tractor, He had watched his father use the tractor to accomplish all sorts of things on the farm. When he was a little boy, Jason had ridden many times on his father's lap as his dad mowed the various fields on the property to prep for plowing. Occasionally, his dad let him steer the tractor, and as he got older and and taller, his dad actually let him use the, the controls for the mower and also do some shifting and such. But his dad had always been right there to take back control in an instant, and that was often necessary. (laughs) One morning after Jason had become a rather tall 12-year-old, his dad hooked up the huge mowing rig to the back of the tractor, just as he had done countless times before. But this time, uh, Jason's dad held out the keys And he said to his son, son, it's your turn to do some mowing. Jason's eyes opened wide and a big smile came over his face. His heart was filled with elation to think about how much fun this was going to be. And of course, it was also filled with elation to realize that his dad was trusting this task to him he practically leaped straight from the ground onto the seat, skipping the step on the way up because he was so anxious to get started with this adventure. But then almost as quickly as that elation had overtaken him, it was replaced with an overwhelming and very sobering sense of the weightiness of what his father had just placed in his hands. He thought about how many times he had watched his dad use this tractor to tear down old fences, to uproot big stumps, and to move boulders that nobody could even begin to budge on his own power. He thought about the damage he could do if he lost control of this big mechanical beast that he was holding the keys to. And then he remembered one evening years before when the tractor had broken down big time and he had eavesdropped from the hallway listening in on a conversation between his mom and his dad as they discussed options for dealing with the crisis. He vividly remembered hearing his dad say that the repair needed on the tractor was going to require them to sell some of the irrigation equipment that would be critical if they didn't get as much rain in that Season as they were hoping they would get. As he sat there by himself on that tractor seat, Jason wondered what his parents might have to sell if he wasn't paying close enough attention and hit a big rock or goofed up the transmission. Realizing what was at stake, Jason's elation turned into a fervent determination to handle the task his dad had just hand, handed to him thoughtfully, diligently, and well. Our passage this morning is about what you and I will do with the incomparably weighty task that God has so graciously filled our hands to do. In this passage, there are three imperatives Three direct commands in verses 13 to 21 on which Peter hangs every other word in this passage. And those three imperatives are in verse 13, fix your hope. In verse 15, be holy. And in verse 17, conduct yourselves. The word therefore at the very beginning of this passage ties all that Peter says in these verses together with what he said in the previous passage in verses 1-12. through That passage was about the marvelous salvation and the living hope that God has graciously given to us in Jesus Christ. When we make that connection between this passage and the preceding one, and when we see these three commands in context, what we come up with is Peter is saying to us, because God chose you, redeemed you, and sealed you for this glorious salvation into which both prophets and angels have longed to look since time began. Because He gave you this living hope, therefore, fix your hope on the grace to come, be holy in all your behavior, and conduct yourselves in fear. To make it Easy to remember these outline points. I I reduced them to two-word statements. The first is hope diligently. The second is be holy. And the third is fear rightly. Hope diligently, be holy, and fear rightly. First, hope diligently. Verse 13. He begins with two exhortations that are closely tied to the central command that comes at the end of verse 13. He says, therefore, gird your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit, and then he gets to the heart of it. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now the idea of girding our minds comes from a common practice in biblical times back when men wore long robes that went all the way to their feet. If a man went into battle without doing something about that robe, it would quickly entangle him and trip him up. And that could be a life or death matter in the midst of a battle. So in order to keep his robe from becoming a potentially life-threatening encumbrance, the soldier would pull up the bottom of his robe and he would tuck it into a loincloth or a belt around his waist to get it out of the way. Peter uses that well-known practice as a metaphor here for what we do with our minds. To gird your mind for action is to very deliberately set aside every thought that would sidetrack you from the singular focus of mind that makes you ready to do God's work. The war into which we were placed the moment we came to faith in Jesus Christ is a war for the eternal souls of men. And the first battle in that war every single day is a personal battle that takes place in the realm of our thoughts. The first part of Proverbs 23 7 says, as a man thinks within himself, so he is. And it is Just as biblically sound to say, as a man thinks within himself, so he does. Peter says to us, gird your minds for action. And I believe the second exhortation in the verse, keep sober, is also talking about what we do with our mind that prepares us to act. A sober-minded man is a mentally self-disciplined man. He's sober in his spirit and in his behavior because his mind is very intentionally set on things that matter profoundly and eternally both to God and to God's ambassadors. And certainly the literal sense of the, of the command to keep sober is pertinent here as well because one way that a man might give himself over to the kind of careless thinking that leads to careless action is if he indulges in drunkenness. Drunk people and stoned people don't think very effectively. And they're not ready to act very effectively when the need arises. But that's just one of many possible ways that you may hand over control of your thought life. Many Christians who never abuse alcohol or illicit drugs, nonetheless, go through their days in a mental mode that is both passive and lazy. The thoughts in their head at any given moment are determined entirely by something or someone other than themselves. Because they're putting no effort into thinking. We all know that how that works firsthand, right? Because we've all done it. The moment that you give up intentional control over the script that's playing in your head, your thoughts become as random as the input that you're getting from your senses. You become like Doug, the golden retriever in the Disney movie Up. You guys all know what I'm squirt. And for those of you who, just like I, can quickly check off 90% of the screening points on every online test for adult ADD, the rate at which those random thoughts bounce from one thing to another can become staggering. Whatever, you t- whatever time that you spend in that passive mode of thinking is time that goes right down the chute and you never get it back. But you don't have to think passively to bail out on God's assignment for your mind. You can be very fixated on one particular line of thinking and still pull that off. (laughs) We have an unlimited number of versions of how to play that out. Chain watching March Madness games until you're jolted out of your fugue state when the water from the overflowing toilet soaks through your house slippers. Binge watching NCIS until you know Tony DiNozzo better than you know your third child. That's one of my favorites, by the way. Non-stop video game adventures while you're slowly starving to death in front of a glowing screen. Which, by the way, does not count as fasting. Shopping online in your PJs until your eyes are permanently crossed and your checking account is empty and you've forgotten your second child's name. I'm not saying that TV or video games or online shopping are inherently evil. What I'm saying is that even when our minds are steadfastly engaged in something, if we give our minds over to things that don't matter to God, we are abandoning our God-given assignment. See, this is about being primed and ready at all times to do God's bidding and to fight God's battles. But we must not miss the fact that the central command in verse 13 is not gird your minds. It's not keep sober. It is fix your hope. The English Standard Version reflects this emphasis very well. It says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully, completely on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. A life well-lived for Christ depends on a hope firmly fixed on Christ. If you take the living hope, the confident, eager anticipation of our guaranteed inheritance in Christ out of this picture, what you have left is great resolve with nothing to sustain it. God promises every believer in Jesus Christ that the day is coming when we will enter fully into the glorious inheritance that God has prepared and stored up and secured for us, the same imperishable, undefiled, never-fading inheritance that is reserved in heaven for us by the power of God that Peter talked about in verse 4 of the same chapter. The same salvation ready to be revealed in the last time of which He spoke in verse 5 of this same chapter. The praise and glory and honor that will accrue to Jesus through the vindication of our faith on that same day. The day when He will be revealed in His glory, according to verse 7 of this same chapter. That hope pervades all that Peter's talking about here. There is only one way, just one, that you and I can be always ready to do our Lord's work well in the midst of the the carpet bombing that we receive all day every day from the world, the flesh, and the devil. And that is by never taking our eyes off the prize. The only way that we're going to manage to consistently take God's assignment as seriously and as soberly as God intends us to take it, is if we fix our hope completely on that coming day when Jesus returns and we get the rest of the grace that God has prepared and stored up for us. Now, this is really important You can assemble all of the commands and exhortations and warnings of judgment that you will find in all of the Bible, and you can set every one of them in front of a believer, but unless his hope is fixed completely on the grace to be brought to him at the revelation of Jesus Christ, he cannot sustain the effort to do those things. And you know what that means? It means Christians have to be in the Word of God as a habit of life. The Holy Spirit is at work in every single believer to to make us useful to God, and He's doing that work every day. But if you think you can divorce the sanctifying work of the Spirit from the Scriptures that He wrote, then you have an entirely inaccurate and unbiblical understanding of how the Spirit actually works in us both to will and to work for God's good pleasure. In 1 Corinthians 2, who was cited this morning, Paul says that the only way that men can possibly come to know all that God has prepared for those who love Him is through the illuminating work of the Spirit working through His Word. Spiritual thoughts of God combined with spiritual words. Our battle posture Our constant readiness to act on God's behalf, along with the sober-minded attitude that keeps us undistracted in that readiness, both proceed from a diligent fixation on the grace that's coming to us in the person of Jesus Christ when He comes back. That glorious fulfillment of our hope that we know about only We know about it only because God has made it known in His Word. In verses 14-16, to Peter gives us the second command that is founded on the living hope to which God has called us as His redeemed. And that command is to be holy. He starts verse 14 by pointing out that we are to live as obedient children, not disobedient ones, and that life of obedience means that we must set aside all conformity with the former lusts that ruled us when we were still lost and dead in our sins. Ignorant of any notion of the hope that now belongs to us in Christ. But Peter's emphasis in verses 14 through 16 again is not on this negative exhortation. His focus is not on what we must stop doing his focus is on what we must do. Verse 15 contains the imperative that is the focal point of verses 14 to 16 and that imperative is be holy. Peter says to us, like the one who called you, be holy yourselves in all also in all your behavior. Now in verse 13 Peter made it clear that What we do with our minds is critically important. But here, he makes it equally clear that holiness is not measured by what we think. It's measured by what we do, by our behavior. He cites from the Old Testament what is perhaps the most foundational command in all of Scripture. You are to be holy, for I am holy. In Leviticus, you'll find that command repeatedly. And by the way, Leviticus is the greatest treatise that you will ever read on the holiness of God. In Leviticus 20, verse 26, God said to Israel, Thus you are to be holy to Me, for I, Yahweh, am holy, and I have set you apart from the peoples to be Mine. To be Mine. See, we are to be holy because God is holy, and because God owns us, He bought us for Himself. And that same connection between God's holy character and God's ownership of His people is in focus in Leviticus 11, verses 44 to 45. My brother Paul Johannan pointed this very important connection out to me on Wednesday. "'I am Yahweh your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy.'" For I am Yahweh who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. Thus you shall be holy. For I am holy. Those whom God redeems, God owns. If you have trouble with that, if you're a Christian and it rubs you the wrong way to hear anyone talk about God owning you, get over it. Because that is the reality that defines who you are, why you're here, and where you're going. God owns you. You're no longer yours. You've been bought with a price. And beloved, it was the greatest price ever paid for anything. Now, because you're His... He gets to tell you what your life is all about every single day. If you're a Christian and you're kicking against that reality, you are doing something that is more futile than trying to live as if gravity doesn't apply to you. God saved you to make us His, and now guess what? He is going to make you holy. And the standard, the measure of the holiness to which He has called us is His. His holiness. And that's a perfect standard. In Matthew 5.48, at the end of the most focused declaration in the Bible about what kind of righteousness passes muster with God, Jesus says, Therefore, you are to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. That's the only holiness that will get you into the kingdom of God. It is impossible to express how important it is that we get that. Because if we don't, we very easily become confused about whose holiness we're talking about here. We quickly turn away from grace-based righteousness to to the works-based mirage of righteousness, self-righteousness. We are called to be holy as God Himself is holy. So that means that if it's not Him imparting His holiness to us, everything that we do is futile and useless. And that's where our living hope comes into focus yet again. When our eyes are fixed on that hope, we know without a doubt that God's going to finish that holiness construction project that He has begun in us every act done in this life to display His holiness, every drop of blood, sweat, and tears that is shed in the pursuit of that holiness is going to endure for all eternity. But we must never forget whose holiness it is. See, your life in the final analysis is not about the pursuit of holiness. It's about the pursuit of the One who is holy. The third and last of the three key imperatives in this passage is found in verse 17, and it is the command to conduct yourselves in fear, to fear rightly. Peter says, if you address as father, the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay. Peter's making sure that we, that we get who it is with whom we have to do. Our God, as Moses, Isaiah, and the writer of Hebrews each pointed out, is a consuming fire. He is the God who is going to stand in judgment over every man according to each man's works. And as we just saw, the standard of measure by which men will be judged is the holiness of God. There's no other standard. That means that every single man, woman, and child who is judged on his or her own merits will infinitely and utterly fail that test. Every one of us deserves only condemnation from our holy God because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and God doesn't grade on the curve. Those who bear His judgment for their sins upon their own shoulders will suffer the condemnation described as the lake of fire. A place of eternal torment banished entirely from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power forever and ever. That is the eternal destiny of all those who were not related to God the Judge as God their Father. They will know His judgment instead of His grace because they did not believe in the One who came from heaven to earth and bore our sins upon Himself in our place. To pay in our place The eternal, terrible, unpayable debt that we owed to God. But Peter's not talking to those people here. He's not saying, listen up all you who who call God your Father. Just in case you've got that relationship with God thing wrong, you better toe the line. If it turns out that your works don't pass muster on Judgment Day... Your Holiness, your toast. So you, you'd better live as if that salvation isn't all that settled, because the only way to be really safe is to be really holy. No. <laughs> Peter is not talking to people who make a false claim to be the children of God, and if he was, that's not what he would say to them. He would not be telling them to act holy to prove that they're saved. Peter's talking to the redeemed of God, and you know how I know that? Because he says it over and over and over in this chapter, starting with the very first verse. He's talking to us who have, by God's amazing grace, come to confidently, confidently address the judge of heaven and earth as Father. He's talking to us to whom the glorious salvation that he's been describing throughout this chapter belongs. And he says to us, to you and me, who believe in Jesus Christ, he says, conduct yourselves in fear during your time here until Jesus comes back. Conduct yourselves means live this way. Peter's talking about our daily, ongoing way of living the Christian life. And and it is a way that never loses sight of the fearsomeness of our God. In Philippians 2, Paul sets before us the humility of Christ when he came to save. And then he speaks of the coming exaltation of Christ when he comes to judge. And he says, every knee will bow before him, in heaven and and on earth and under the earth. Then in verses 12 and 13, he says, So then, my beloved my beloved, my brothers and sisters in Christ, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. He's not saying accomplish your salvation. (laughs) He's saying put your salvation to work and do so with fear. And what does that mean? If, if we will not suffer eternal condemnation at God's hand, what is it that we are supposed to fear now? Well, if you spend any time in the Old Testament, it doesn't take long to realize that in the temporal realm, meaning during the time that we as God's people live on this earth, he deals with our persistent sin in a manner that should make anyone who's holding tightly to that sin quake in his sandals. In Amos chapter 3, God said to Israel, Hear this word which Yahweh has spoken against you, sons of Israel, against the entire family which He brought up from the land of Egypt. You only have I chosen among all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will Punish all of your transgressions. You know who gets the worst of God's bad side during the very brief time that we're here on this earth? It's not the people that don't belong to God, it's the people who do. And that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Parents? Who gets to behold the worst of your indignation? Your neighbor's kids? No. Your kids. And the warnings to the problem child in the body of Christ in the New Testament are every bit as fearsome as the warnings to wayward Israelites in the Old Testament. Personally, I believe that all of the very, very harsh warnings in the book of Hebrews are talking to God's redeemed, not to those who might not be or probably aren't God's redeemed. And there are many passages like that in the New Testament. With respect to those who disagree with me, that's fine about that, about Hebrews. There are many warnings in the New Testament that are explicitly addressed to believers. And they are cause for fear and trembling to any child of God who chooses to kick against God's work to impart His holiness to us. God scourges every son whom He receives. And the discipline of God is always painful and sorrowful for the moment, but in the end it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness, and in the end it makes us to share His holiness. It's not supposed to be painless. But as real and as clearly biblical as that cause for fear is, in the wayward life of a believer. Yet again, I do not believe that's the focus of the fear that Peter is fundamentally talking about here. We can't stop at mid-sentence at the end of verse 17. He hasn't finished his thought yet. (laughs) In the next two verses, 18 and 19, Peter tells us that this fear that is to be an ever-present part of the lifestyle of every child of God is not fundamentally... It is not fundamentally the fear of what God will do today or tomorrow to put us back on His gracious path to holiness when we stray from it. Beloved, it is the fear that comes from rightly assessing something God already did. It is the fear that comes from knowing what it cost God to claim you for Himself the knowledge of what it cost both God the Father and the Son to free us from His terrible wrath against our sin and to make us His treasured possession is knowledge that produces the fear in us that Peter's talking about here. I'll say again, Peter did not write these words To make poorly performing saints wonder if they're really saved so they'll finally get serious and kick their pursuit of that holiness into high gear. Make no mistake, Peter's goal in this passage is indeed to exhort the people of God to take holiness very, very seriously. But the means by which he propels us toward that holiness is not by undermining the certainty of our redemption it is by piercing our hearts with the vivid, blood-stained reminder of the price that God paid to give us that redemption. To us who have come by God's grace to address the judge of all the earth as Father, Peter says, conduct yourselves in fear during your time here, knowing that, knowing that you were bought with the priceless blood of Jesus Christ. If you know whom you have believed, and if the one in whom you have placed your trust is Jesus Christ, then what should make you tremble during the little bit of time that you have on this earth is even the thought that you might somehow take lightly what it cost God to make you the eternal object of His grace. It should be fearsome to you to think that you might trivialize the precious blood of Christ which alone was powerful enough to wash away your sin. Here again, Peter calls us to focus like a guided missile on the holiness-imparting, perseverance-sustaining, living hope that we who believe in Jesus Christ are supposed to know that we have been given. If you don't see that all over this chapter, go home and read it again. You'll never arrive at what a passage means if you don't acknowledge what it says. There is and always has been a pervasive notion in many Christian circles that certainty somehow undermines holiness. Holiness. I would argue that the unassailable certainty that we have in Jesus Christ, the living hope that we have in God's promise of our imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance, that very certainty is the bedrock upon which holiness is built. If you take away our living hope, you take away our holiness. The life's blood of holiness is hope. And the corrective for compromised holiness is to remember whose blood made that living hope yours. This you know, beloved, this you know. If your trust is in Jesus Christ alone, you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life that you inherited from your forefathers, but you were redeemed with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Jesus Christ. To know the immeasurable price that God paid to ransom us out of the domain of darkness into his marvelous light is to know the fearsomeness both of that ransom and of the God who paid it to make you his own. In verses 20 and 21, Peter ends this powerful passage by pointing our attention squarely to the object of our faith and our hope. The one whose blood delivered you from the eternal penalty that you and I deserved from the judge of all mankind. The one whose blood redeemed you to be his inheritance. His treasured possession forever the one whose blood secured for you the glorious inheritance that you get to share with Him when He returns. That one is the one whom Peter says was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through Him are believers in God who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Your salvation, if you belong to Christ, has been in the works since before the world's existed. That also applies if you will come to faith in Christ. Your salvation has been in the works since before God created everything that you see. Your Redeemer is the one from whom in eternity past, enjoyed perfect love and fellowship and communion with the Father and the Spirit. But He left the purity and perfection and unspeakable glory of His home in heaven and He came here, and you know why He did? For the sake of you. It is through Him, it is by His doing, that you are believers in God. It is through Him that your faith and your hope are now in God. At the end of 1 Corinthians 1, one of my favorite verses, Paul says, By His doing you are in Christ, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from, uh, from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. May we know, brothers and sisters, may we know the weightiness of what we have been given. May we know how precious is the price that God paid to give it to us. And may we know the glorious weightiness of the one who paid that cost to make us his own. May we hope diligently be holy, and fear rightly. Let's drive this tractor really, really well. Loving Father, we praise You again for this living hope that You've given to us. We deserved Your condemnation and nothing else. And You sent Your Son to give us this prize, this gift that we can just barely even comprehend. If You hadn't told us about it in Your Word with great with great glory, even in those words, uh, we'd never have guessed it. <laughs> but Father, we ask that You keep our eyes firmly fixed on the hope of the glory that will be revealed when Your Son is revealed again. And He takes over this creation and every knee bows and every tongue confesses Him. We know it's going to happen. We say, Lord, even so, come. It's in His name that we pray.
0: Amen.